We are in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. This is the most peculiar chapter. If you've ever uh, studied through Acts on your own, if you've ever uh, been a, uh, some of those in here who are pastors and have taught through the book of Acts, you come to Acts chapter 21, and I'm telling you, it is a it is an, a, an interesting place that we're going to be at today. Um, I do know that some people skip over it. Some commentators, you know, you might go to read on somebody and they they, they kind of brush over it as well because it's, it's an interesting spot. And the title of the message today is really simply this. Did Paul sin? Ooh, did Paul sin? Bum, bum, bum. Right? You wondering about that? We're going to look at this here today, and Lord willing, we're going to see what, what was going on here and how it applies to us. But if you remember two weeks ago, um, oh, before I get on, um, we do have the recording from our missionary last week, and uh, we don't put his stuff online. Um, I can't put it online because of the country he's in, uh, because if he goes back, they do searches. Uh, it's very It's very hard for him in the country he is. I don't even want to say anything now because this will be recorded and eventually online as well. But if you do want a copy of that, I believe we can make a copy of that that you can keep for yourself. If you promise, if you promise not to put it online, not to copy it, then you can have that. If you do, we'll just have to do public floggings and uh, out front here if we find it online from somebody. And uh, but so hopefully that'll deter anybody who's wanting to do that. But uh, we do have that. That was a blessing last week. I, I have been, listen, I've been gleaning and I have been meditating on that message all week. And uh, we do definitely need revival. And uh, I'm, I was thankful for that word last week and powerful word it was. And so um, <clears throat> if you want that, that is available. But so two weeks ago, that made me think about this. Two weeks ago, we were here back in Acts chapter 21. Paul had left Caesarea Philippi. He was there with uh, Philip. The Bible says Philip the Evangelist. He was there with Philip for several days. And while he was there, if you remember, Agabus came along and he took Paul's girdle. And uh, we talked about this. It's not like a lady's girdle. It's just an old English word for a belt. They had this leather belt that they might have kept their clothes together. Or they may have used as a type of a sheath if they, if they carried any type of a sword or a weapon with them. But he had this girdle. And Agabus took Paul's girdle from him, wrapped his own wrists up with his girdle and said, the man in whose, hand, whose girdle this belongs to is going to be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. And he was, he was letting Paul know that there was problems coming for him when he got to Jerusalem. Now, Paul already knew this. You remember, Paul said that in every city that he had gone to, the Holy Spirit was telling him that there are bonds and afflictions that were awaiting him when he got to Jerusalem. And he said, but none of these things move me, remember? So he kept moving forward. He needed to go to Jerusalem. He had to get there. Even, even, when Agabus came and said, "Don't, don't you, you're, there's going to be problems when you get to Jerusalem, the house that Paul was staying in, look at this in, in your text in verse 13, the house that Paul was staying in began to warn him as well. And they, they said, don't go. You can't go up there. Uh, you're going to have problems when you go. And look what Paul said in verse 13. What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? Paul said, don't do this to me. I've got to get to Jerusalem. Don't stop me. 
Don't try to warn me. Look at this, what he says. For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, and I believe, uh, I hope we rejoiced in the fact that Paul lived by conviction, and he lived by the, the, the conviction of the Word of God, that, of, of the job that God had told him to do. And he essentially was saying, uh, don't do this to me because nothing is going to stop me from completing what God wants me to do. Listen, there was no, oh, listen to this, there was no fear in Paul's life. I like that. And we're living in a day of fear, aren't we? We are living in a time, understandably, there are things going on that are just weird, man. They're just messed up. The government's a mess. We've known that. But my goodness, it's like, you know, you, you poke at a, at a little den full of rattlesnakes and they, they, you start knowing they're there, right? You ever jam a stick up a wasp nest? Yeah. What happens? You run, right? It creates a lot of chaos. And the best way thing to do was a, a lighter and a, you know, some type of aerosol painter. That was exciting with a wasp nest. That's fun. Or the underground bees. Oh, I'm getting off track. Underground bees. Gasoline. You ever pour gasoline down a hole and light it? Finishes them, really. That's exciting. But listen, when you start doing stuff like that, you're going to create chaos. And I'm telling you, we're living in a time of chaos. We're living in a time when people are fearing on every side. And I want to remind you what the what John, the beloved, said, the apostle John said over in John 4, 18. He said, there is no fear in love. My friend Bob Clark, who is in Africa and Kenya for nine and a half years, he was on the Sudanese border up in Eldoret in that area. He said they were building a church and here comes this band of bandits with their AK-47s and they're doing their little, uh, their little war, uh, pattern. They're running through the, uh, through the, the through the deal and, and they're going to meet with the pastor there to see how much loot they can get, how much they can be paid to leave the church alone. And this is real stuff, folks. This isn't like what, you know, the, the, those guns are real. They really kill people and things like that. And Bob said, while they were running by, and Bob goes, I'm just kind of shaking their hand as they go by, you know. <laughs> and, and he goes, I don't know what the deal was. And he goes, but I'm just reminded that perfect love casts out fear. And he goes, you know what, if I love the African like I'm supposed to love the African, what is there to fear? There's nothing to fear. And you know what? He goes, that pastor sat that group of people down. He goes, the pa- I, I, I preached to them for about 45 minutes. The pastor preached to them about 45 minutes. And the leader of that group stood up and said, we have heard from God today. We won't get anything. And he said, they walked away. You know what, several of them, a few of them, he said, got saved. Several of them showed up at the church service the next day. Yeah. No fear. You know what you know what John goes on to say? Because fear has torment. And you know what? There are people today that should be here this morning, that should be in some other churches this morning, that should be wherever God has told them to be, and they are living in torment because of fear. And I'm just, I want to encourage you. I'm thinking, you know, for you that are here and you that can maybe need yourself encouraged and a little bit of fear and trepidation, don't live in that turmoil. Don't live in that fear. Don't, don't live in that torment. Trust God. Trust God. And this is Paul's life. I love it. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. If I've got to die there, I'll die there. I'm either, I said it this morning. I will either die in the will of God or I'm going to die out of the will of God. Either way, I'm going to leave this planet someday. And I would much rather leave this planet in the will of God than out of the will of God. Yeah. 
Paul had conviction. I love it. Absolutely had conviction. But the story kind of changes here, and it's kind of weird. I want you to notice in our text here, verse 17, Brother Jim read this. And the first thing we have here is a reception for Paul. They have taken up their luggage. The Bible says their carriages. That just means their luggage. They That's an old English word. It's not talking about carriages like horse and carriages. They just took up their luggage and from Caesarea Philippi. It's a, it's a fascinating place. I've been there. It's really neat. Um, and we'll see later, actually, I, I've stood in the place where they say Paul uh, met with Agrippa. It's, it's all still there. It's, it's incredible. But he left this place, Caesarea Philippi, and they went by foot up to uh, Jerusalem. So they show up in Jerusalem, and we see here in verse 17 that they got to Jerusalem, and it says, The brethren, you see this here in your text, the brethren received us gladly. Now notice this. So they get there. They, they were well received. They, they loved the Apostle Paul. They loved, obviously, they, they were okay with what he was doing. They were received gladly. And then on the next day, Paul is going to meet now with James and the elder of the church at Jerusalem. The James, the, the pastor will say of the church here at Jerusalem and the elders of the church. And uh, so he has a meeting with them and he reports on the work that was done there. Look at verse 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James. And all the elders were present. Now notice that little word, us. How many know who wrote the book of Acts? Yeah. Same one who wrote the book of Luke. (laughs) Dr. Luke. It's a continuation. Remember, Acts starts out, the former treatise... I've given unto the O Theophilus. He had already written to him through the, in, in the book of Luke, and now he's writing again here in Acts. And this, is, this us includes Luke. I believe it includes whoever else there was in the entourage that was going with them. And so he said they went into James. They went into all of the elders were there present. Look at verse 19. And when he had saluted him, he declared particularly what things... God had wrought among the Gentiles by His ministry. You know, our missionary was just here last week and he gave a report, per se, of what was going on in their country. And what a, what a joy that was, wasn't it? To hear what God was doing. Wasn't it? it's, it's a joy to be shown what our, our, the, the, the little bit of money that Calvary Baptist Church sends to them every month. Just $75 a month. We need to vote on raising that one of these days, actually. $75 a month. And to hear how he, that one month he took that $75 and sent it up to that other uh, man and that other work up in the up in the tea country so he could get that fourth van. See, I'm telling you, friend, there's things that go on with what we do in obedience to God that we never see on the backside. And it's exciting to see it once in a while, isn't it? And so here Paul, Paul's telling him what happened, what God is doing among the Gentiles throughout the world. They're not able to, listen, they don't have internet, they don't have Google, they don't have texting, they don't have FaceTime. Uh, Brother Martin, every time he calls me, it's on FaceTime, and then he hangs up and calls me back and says, I hate my phone, because it always calls me on FaceTime. They don't have FaceTime, they don't have any of that stuff. So Paul is reporting back what's going on. And look here in uh, verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Now stop right there. Don't read on yet. They glorified the Lord. They rejoiced in what Paul was telling them. They were glad to hear 
what God was doing among the Gentiles. Know what else this acknowledges when it says they glorified the Lord? I think it also acknowledges that they are agreeing that this was a work of God, what was going on in Paul's ministry. This was a work of God. And so they're happy about it. They're happy about it. Do you know there is no greater joy to the child of God than hearing about the work of God in the lives of people that we don't even know about? Our missionaries come in and they tell us what God is doing in their country and they tell us a, a, a little stories about this, this person was coming and this one got saved and to watch this person's life change and to watch them do things that they never thought they would ever do and rejoice in that. We, I'm telling you, we rejoice in that, don't we? It's exciting, isn't it? It builds our own faith to continue on and to keep going. It, it encourages us to continue. It, it brings joy to our, our heart. And, and, and remember, I think Jesus it was in Luke 15. When Jesus says there is presence, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, I don't want to get on too much of a theological rabbit trail. But you notice, if you listen to that closely in, in, in Luke 15, he says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. Amen. Didn't say the angels rejoiced. There is rejoicing in the presence. Who's rejoicing? Our Heavenly Father is rejoicing. You remember the angels look into salvation and they don't understand it. Remember, the Bible tells us. They look at it and they go, what is that? I, I don't, why, would, why would a holy God do such a thing for such a wicked and an undeserving people? And you know what? We know that God rejoices. God rejoices here in the presence of His angels over one sinner that repents. And this is, listen, the church here is rejoicing. They're rejoicing at the work that's going on in the world among the Gentiles. And we, re, we are reminded by this. Here's, here's what we're reminded here. That Jesus had commanded His church to go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is what the church at Jerusalem had started doing. It's what they had started doing when, they, when the church at Antioch was started. It is what the, exactly what the church at Antioch was doing when it obeyed the Holy Spirit of God and sent out Paul and Barnabas. It is, and it's exactly what Paul and Barnabas were doing when they went into to nation after nation and city after city and country after country and synagogue after synagogue and preached the gospel and saw people got saved and established independent churches and local churches and watched, the, watched God do a mighty, mighty work in all of the known world. Please listen to me, please. The gospel still works. It still works. Absolutely. No government can stop it. <laughs> yeah. No government can stop it. No law can stop it. No disease can stop it. No pandemic can stop it. No fear tactic can stop the gospel. I'm telling you today, 2,000 years of history have proven that if you'll just preach the gospel, people will get saved and churches will be established. Listen, friend, that is something to get excited about. So the re reception started out pretty well. This is a good time. I'm wondering if in the back of Paul's mind, he's being remembered. When are the bonds, bonds, bonds coming? When's the trouble coming? It's got to be coming. So it takes an interesting turn. Would you look at verse 20? We started there. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him. Okay, this is where it gets weird. 
Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. That's weird. <laughs> it's like shifting from third, first to third or first to fourth. <laughs> it's got, you ever do that? Get something with a real tight gearbox, and man, you miss miss uh, second, third, or you hit fifth, or I mean, you're just you're in the wrong place, man. Car goes, you know, uh oh. Now, if you have yeah, if you have good deep gears, you know, you're all right, you know, four eleven, something like that, it'll be all right. You'll get through it. But uh, this is a weird spot. I think it's strange that they brought up how many people were in the church at Jerusalem. Do you realize there was upwards to 14,000 members of the church at Jerusalem? Mainly all Jews. Primarily Jewish. 14,000. I had a friend of mine who attended uh, Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis back in the 90s and the early 2000s, back when the late Dr. Adrian Rogers still pastored there. And he said, you know, on any given Sunday, there's 10,000 people in that place. You know what he told me one time? <laughs> Sidetrack, this is funny. I think it's hilarious. He said, he told me at any given time, there's 10,000 people in that place. And he goes, and one Sunday morning, Brother Rogers preached on liquor and you could have heard a pin drop in that place. He said, he tore it up. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Why, why was the number of the church, why was the, why was the attendance mentioned? Isn't that weird? I remember Dr. Eli Haru one time told an event when he was in, uh, he was at a preacher's meeting, a fellowship meeting, a BBFI fellowship meeting. And he said an individual, a pastor, walked up to, to Dr. John Rawlins and he said, Hey, we had 300 in church last week. And John Rawlins, he said he didn't bat an eye. And he said, Oral Roberts had 3,000. He walked away. <laughs> what was he saying? Big deal. Why are numbers mentioned sometimes? To validate a ministry. Well, did you hear what so-and-so's, you know, did you hear their doctrinal position on this? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they run, he runs like 3,500 in their church. Oh, let me read that again. Sometimes they throw numbers out to validate, don't they? I think this is kind of what James is doing here. I think this is what the elders are doing here. You know, look at this, Paul. And they informed thee that thou teachest the, uh, sorry, verse 20. They glorified the Lord and said unto him, thou seest, brother, you can see with your own eyes, Paul, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. Now notice what he says next. And they're all zealous of the law. They're all living according to the law still. They're zealous for it. They have a great zeal for the law. No, they're believers. They have placed their faith and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus, uh, Yeshua, Messiah, He is the Messiah. They believe He is. He is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. They believe that the, the, the work of Christ is completely finished and they've placed their faith and trust in that. But they're also zealous for the law still. Yeah. And so I think James here is validating their practices. This is Jesus' church. This is the first called out assembly. That's what ecclesia means, remember? Called out assembly. When did the first church start? Well, when Jesus started calling them out. Yeah. When, what happened at Pentecost? It was empowered. It already existed, 120 in the upper room. Church didn't start at Pentecost. It was before Pentecost. 
It was empowered at Pentecost. But Jesus started this church. And now it's up to thousands of believers. Can I, can I show you this though? This is a side note. You don't, you don't hear much of the church of Jerusalem after this. Do you know when you get to the book of Revelation and, and Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, and, and uh, chapter 2 and 3 you have the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus didn't choose His own church. Jerusalem, you don't even have, hear it mentioned. You know it's mentioned? The seven churches of Asia Minor that Paul started. What's going on here? I, well, I think it's the beginning of compromise. Why, why, did, why did this church at Jerusalem allow all of this, this zealousness of the law to continue? Well, they had to live in Jerusalem. Do you notice, do you remember when Paul, every synagogue he went to, he pretty much got thrown out of, but the church at Jerusalem was able to run 14,000 with no problems? Just something for you to think about this week, okay? But notice here in verse 21, there's a charge brought against Paul. They're zealous of the law. Look at verse 21. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. So here's the charge against Paul, that he's teaching Jews to forsake the law. Now notice specifically here what he's saying. Forsake the law of Moses, they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. Now, we know that's not true. He went and had Timothy circumcised. So he wasn't an offense to the Jews. Yeah. And I don't have time to get into circumcision and things like that. And there is so much here that I would love to dive into that it would take us forever and we'd never get out of here. But I, I want to get to the point of all of this today. So there's a charge against Paul in verse 21. Notice this, circumcision, specifically circumcision, customs. What was circumcision? It was a token. It was an evidence, watch this, of a covenant between God and Abraham for real estate, the land. Calvary Baptist Church does not believe in in replacement theology. We do not believe the church is Israel. We do not believe the church became Israel. We're not Calvinist. We're not covenant theology. Amen. We're not. (laughs) Okay? Listen, the land still belongs to them. The seed of Abraham is still on the planet. And that, that, that covenant that God made with Abraham was a literal covenant. It was a token. It was evidenced. It was supposed to be evidenced by, by circumcision. And listen, they are still on the planet today. The seed of Abraham is still there. The token still is still there. The covenant is still in effect. It's an everlasting covenant and the land is still theirs. Yeah. Are they right with God? No, they're not right with God. They will be someday, but they're not now. Yeah. So the charge is that you're, Paul, you're telling people, you're telling Jews, watch this, you're telling Jews, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to follow the customs of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the law of Moses. And he says, Paul, is this true? What do you say, man? Is this, are you really doing this? And here's what else he goes on to say. Here, you can see in your verse, when they find out about this, they're going to want to hear you. Verse 22. So James has a plan. I mean, we, we don't have it recorded here that Paul answered him. 
James has a plan here in verse 23. Look at this. i got to move along here. Look at verse 23. Do therefore this that we say to thee, have four men which have a vow on them, take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that the, that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So James is saying, do this one thing. If you would do this, they're going to know that what they've heard of you isn't true, and that, listen, you're still following the law, you're still walking in the law, and all of these accusations are false. So what was this thing, that the, the vow that these four men had? Because I think this is, this is important. This was the Nazarite vow. You can go back into Numbers. You can see the vow of the Nazarite. I don't have time to go into this, but there's three things they were not to do. They were not to cut the seven locks of their head, of their hair. They were not to touch anything dead, or they were not, and they were not to have any fruit of the vine. No grapes, no moist grapes, no, no juice, no wine, nothing of that effect of the fruit of the vine. This was the vow of the Nazarite. It was a vow of consecration. It was, a, it was an outward visible sign that they could see that this person is a Nazarite and it was taken by a parent many times and, and, uh, and, or by an individual and it was to show them that they, were, they have consecrated, they have purposely, on, dis, uh, on purpose, uh, decided to consecrate themselves unto God for a specific amount of time, for a specific purpose, and they made it evident. Well, here are four guys in the church at Jerusalem, believers, who have taken the vow of the Nazarite. Actually, if you go back to Acts 18, Paul did as well at Sincrea. He had to shave his head. We're going to look at this. So they've taken the vow of consecration. It's just a ceremonial law. Listen, it's not an, there is an offering involved at the end of the seven-day period. I'm getting ahead of myself. Stop it. Okay, here we go. They're, they're, they're to shave their head, all right? They're to shave their head at the end of their vow. Shave their head. They would come into the temple, shave their head. They would, they would for seven days, they would go into the temple. At the end of the seven days, they would shave their head again, and then they would bring an offering. The offering didn't have to be a sin offering. It could be a, it could be a peace offering. It could be a thanks offering. It didn't have to be a, 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 a sin offering. Okay? But that could be a sin, it could be a sin offering, but it didn't have to. So this was what, how you end, conclude the vow of a Nazarite. So here these four va- Nazarites are, this vow of the Nazarites are here in, in, uh, in, in, let me say this. Jesus was a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. He didn't have long hair. It would be a contradiction to 1 Corinthians 11. Anyway, I had a friend of mine. He is a friend. He's an atheist. And uh, his wife told me, he had a little two-year-old girl. His wife told me that uh, he said, she said, yeah, Eli went and got his hair cut. He had long hair ever, ever since our, before we got married or something. He had this long hair and I'd never seen him with it. I hadn't seen him in years. And he goes, he, she goes, he came home with a haircut and their daughter at two goes, Daddy, you're a boy. <laughs> she had never seen him like that. I was like, oh, nature. Doesn't nature itself even teach you? Oh, it was so funny. But this was the vow of a... Oh, see, see, this is why it takes so long. This was the vow of a Nazarite. Jesus was, a, was, was called a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. And so anyway, this was the Nazarite vow. Four of these men had this vow. And so what, what James says is, you go in with these four men... And pay the cost for their vow. Now watch this. This was a seven day period. It cost money to take off work. 
to go to the temple and to have a sacrifice. Some men didn't have the money for that, so sometimes wealthier people would come along and pay the vow. What they were doing is not only they're helping, but they're validating what they were doing. So this is what, uh, this is the plan that, that, uh, what's his name? Uh, James, that's his name. This is the plan that James has for Paul to do. Okay? And Paul does it. This is weird. This is strange. Paul does it. He agrees to it. The Bible says Paul purifies himself, verse 26. He shaves his own head, brings that in. They would bring that. And watch this. Oh, at the end of the week, they would take that hair that they shaved off and it would be burned on the altar as well. Forgot about that. So he, ent- he enters the, 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 the temple. Look at verse 26, would you please? Then Paul took the men and the, and the next day purifying himself with them entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So he did this for seven days. Look at this, every one of them. Yeah. So Paul took up that price and he went along and he began the process of the completion of the Nazarite, the custom of the Nazarite vow in the temple. Why on earth is Paul doing this? Those of you who are students of your Bible, you're scratching your head. I mean, uh, I mean has not Paul already established that the law cannot save? Has he not already, has he not, he's already at this point written letters to the Galatians. He's already written letters to those believers at Rome. Do this, turn a, turn a couple pages over. Romans, Romans chapter 3. Look at this in Romans 3. Let me read this to you. How much time have we got? Plenty of time. We've got another 30 minutes. Did you know that? Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 19. Now we know that those things soever that saith... It saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, listen to this, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets." Paul says the law shows us our condition, but it doesn't remedy our condition. Look at verse 28. Same chapter. Look at verse, He says it again. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith... Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Paul has already dealt with this, hasn't he? You know, the law is like an MRI. An MRI reveals what the problem is, but the MRI doesn't fix what the problem is. And the law reveals what the problem is, but it doesn't fix the problem. And so why is Paul participating in an Old Testament ritual of the law? He's preached against it. It doesn't save. It pictures what's wrong with us. It pictures the coming remedy, but it isn't the remedy. 
You're still in Romans, aren't you? Are you there? Find your place there. Romans. Why is Paul doing this? I can say it in one word. Love. Love. Look at Romans 9 and verse 1. Romans chapter 9. This is amazing to me. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Have you ever made a statement and your conscience goes, you don't believe that. (laughs) Paul says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost as well. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow, continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish, oh, get this, don't miss this. I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom are as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul said, I could wish myself a curse from Christ. If I, listen, if I had to, had to have my relationship with Christ severed so that my kinsmen could be saved, I would do it. And he says, my conscience bears me witness. Wow. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. He doesn't stop. He brings it up again. Look at this. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. You see that? It's his heart's desire. What's he want? Israel to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's not done. Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 right there. He said, I say then, has God cast away His people? God forbid For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah? How he maketh intercession to God for Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed the prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men, which have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. That's good for us to remember today. You're not alone. There's 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You might feel like we're all alone, but we're not. He said, even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, works is no more works. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest we're blinded. And he goes on to say how they have stumbled. But God, listen, God has a place for Israel still. And listen, ah, I don't know if you can get the heart of Paul over and over again. Over again, he says, my heart is that they're saved. My, I have such a heart that Israel is saved that if it were possible that I could be a curse from Christ, think about that now. If I could be a curse from Christ, that all of Israel would be saved, Paul said, I would go ahead and be a curse from Christ, that Israel would be saved. Paul wanted his family saved 
more than anything else in his life. Now watch this. He wasn't going to allow an issue about the law to get in in the way of the gospel. Just some minor thing of the gospel. Some minor thing, I should say, some minor thing of the customs of the Jews called a Nazarite vow. Paul Paul is saying here what he's doing in, in, in Acts chapter 21 is he is appeasing them with some custom so that he doesn't remove his opportunity with the gospel. Now, we don't want to take that too far. He didn't sin. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was at the bar. Yeah, I got a little drunk, but I was trying to witness. Uh, I don't think that's what that means. You know, I was up in Canada. I've told this before, but I was up in Canada working one time. I was up in Calgary, and this uh, this security guard was watching me work, and he was a Muslim. He was from Indonesia. And... uh, I, listen, this is another thing I realized. Our, our, our missionary last week made some comments of, of what the Eastern world thinks of the Western world and how, how, how uh, uh, what, what's the words that were used, how, um, how, how filthy and dirty the Western world seems to those in the East. And the, he said, if you remember, the, the Eastern world looks at, looks at Hollywood and they think that's all of America with the filth and the fornication and the adultery and all of the garbage that's going on that, that's going on in the world. And he's right. He's right. This is one thing that this Muslim brought up to me in Canada. I was, had some opportunity to talk to them and talk to him and kind of was able to segue into, uh, trying to segue into the gospel a little bit while I was working there and he was watching and he brought up, listen, he brought up the condition of America and how, how awful they really are. I said, no, you're exactly right. Yeah. You know, I, this is funny because I, I had to tell, I had to tell him some things about our own home. I'm not saying we're perfect by any means. I said, I said, no, you're right, but you know, there's not everybody's like this. Not everybody's like this. I said, you know, my wife, you know, dresses this way, and our girls dress this way, and we don't do this, and we don't go here, and we don't own a television, we don't go to the movie house, we don't drink alcohol, and we don't do this, and blah 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 blah. blah. And this is what he did. He stopped and he go, he was surprised. So now he listened. No, what our missionary said last week was exactly right. And so all of a sudden he started listening to me. And you know what? I turned it right around and brought him right to the Ten Commandments. I had to watch. I had to get out of the way some issues that were an obstacle to him hearing the gospel to let him know, no, that's not really the case. You know, kind of appeased him a little bit on some things. And I brought right around to the Ten Commandments. And I said, so, but have you ever stolen anything? (laughs) Uh, you ever lied? Mm-hmm. You started getting squirmy then. You ever looked on a woman to lust after her? Mm-hmm. Kind of dropped his head a little bit. Yeah. I said, man, you have a load of sin on you, don't you? That's what I told this Muslim. You have a load of sin on you. And I told him this. You've heard this. I've said it to you before. And I said, Muhammad never offered to take it. Because he can't. What am I saying? I I had to move some things out of the way to get an opportunity with the gospel. 
there was a wall there because of his perception of the Western world that he didn't want to listen. He thought he was better because they lived. Listen, these, these fundamentalist Muslims lived a certain way and they thought we were filthy. And I had to say, well, no, not everybody lives that way, buddy. You're right, but not everybody lives that way. Paul found an area to agree with his Jewish people. This offering of consecration. He found a place to agree so he could have the opportunity to preach Christ. That's what I think is going on here. You want some more proof of it? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll finish this up. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 19. First Corinthians chapter 9, look at verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Look at this. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew. There it is. That I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without law, not being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This is what Paul's desire was. Is it not? Some of you have done it yourself, haven't you? You've gone to a family get-together that you normally wouldn't have gone to. That you might have an opportunity with the gospel. You've gone to a wedding that maybe you wouldn't have normally gone to. That you might have an opportunity for the gospel. I went to a cousin's wedding in a Catholic church one time. I called my aunt. I said, what is the deal with this? She goes, oh, I know, I know, I know. We're going to go. But, uh, you know, the bride was not saved. The family wasn't saved. And uh, we went. I've never seen more alcohol than I saw at a Catholic church. Oh, my goodness. They had the tap right there in the, in the main room. I was like, wow, this is weird. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, we, at the, we, we went to the wedding. Part of it was incredibly sad to watch them come down and bow to Mary. Yeah. At the reception, you know what? The music started, the alcohol started, and we just... We quietly went our way and left. So thank you. Have a good day. We're not going to stay here for that. Yeah. You've done it. Yeah. Jesus went to a wedding, right? Jesus went and ate with the publicans and sinners so much that they called him a glutton and a wine bibber. Right. Yeah. No, he went not to get anything from them. He wasn't looking for anything from them, but to have the opportunity to impart something to them, eternal life. This is what Paul was doing. You wouldn't believe the people I've read, wonderful men, that said Paul was in sin for going into the temple. Listen, I'm not going to question somebody so led of the Spirit of God. I will tell you real shortly, maybe next week we'll get to it, while Paul's there, and boy, it does. It doesn't work out well. Actually, he still gets he still gets taken away and beat up. <laughs> yeah, he's good at that. He's good at getting beat up. 
Jesus is going to come to him in the night and says, you're going to go to Rome because you, you need to testify for me at Rome. Paul loved his own people. He loved them. He partook in a ceremonial custom, not to be like them, but to win them. So watch, the focus in this chapter isn't on the means that Paul used. And no, don't get me wrong, there's times when the means are wrong. Yeah. But in this case, the focus isn't on the means that Paul used. The focus, I believe, here is on the heart that Paul had. On the heart that he had. Which leads me to a question this morning. What is your heart? Don't worry, I've already spent a lot of time asking myself this. What is your heart for those of your kindred who are lost without Christ? How many have lost relatives? Hmm. Yeah. What are you willing to do or not do so that they might be saved? See, I, I really believe that as American Christians, we have become so self-absorbed with the blessings of God that we've lost the heart and the desire for the lost world around us. Kind of Hezekiah's thing, remember that? Oh, there'll be, but there'll be peace in my day. That's good. Yeah. God warned them, judgment's coming to your kids. Okay, so be it, Lord. Ah, there'll be peace in my day. You know, in the words of our missionary last week, I agree with this. We need revival. And you know what I love what he said? It only takes one. It only takes one to get revival. It only takes one to get their heart right with God. And listen, when you come to a place of surrender in front of God and put Him back on His rightful place in your life, the, the, the heart of Paul... What was that heart? It was God's heart. It'll become yours as well. You know, you don't have to work it up. You don't have to make it happen. It'll come. It'll come. And see, this morning, if you've lost the love for the lost world around you, you need revival. You need revival. And it only takes one to get it. What are you doing? What, are the, what is the extent that you're going to to see those around you? No, you give to missions. That's wonderful. You, you give, you give, you give sacrificially some, give sacrificially to see the gospel go throughout all the world. Paul did as well. He gave his own body. But when it came to his family, when it came to his kindred, he was willing to do anything to see them come to Christ. What about you? Heavenly Father, thank You. As always, thank You for Your Word this morning. What a challenge from the life of Paul. What a, what a magnificent reminder that we need to have a heart for the lost. Now, Father, would You do a work in Your people? Lord, that one, just one, would get revival. 
You do a great work. This city is lost, Lord. This county is lost. This state is lost. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands are lost without Christ. And they need the gospel. And sadly, church after church after church is not preaching the gospel. Maybe a social gospel. But they're not preaching the gospel. Lord, would you do a work in our heart to reach those that you've placed in our life? God, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand this morning?